You're listening to Red Leg Nation Radio, the official podcast of RedLegNation.com. Hey there, Reds fans. This is Chad Dotson. Welcome back to Red Leg Nation Radio the official podcast of RedLegNation.com. Appreciate you joining us again today. We've got a pretty good interview for you here. We're going to go ahead and just jump right into it. It's Tom Nichols. He's the voice of the Dayton Dragons, Red single-A farm team. He's got a lot of insights on Dayton and on the Reds system. think you're going to enjoy it. I'm going to turn it over now to our interview guru, Bill Lack. Here we are again today. Today we're talking to Tom Nichols, the voice of the Dayton Dragons. How are you doing today, Tom? Outstanding, Bill, and ready for another baseball season. How about yourself? I'm doing great. I want to thank Tom for giving us some of his time today, and I also want to give a huge thanks to the support that the Dayton Dragons have always given us here at Red Leg Nation. We really appreciate it, Tom. We like the work that you guys do. I know there's a lot of Reds fans out there that like to follow the the players all the way up through the farm system, and when they leave the Dragons, they're, they're still uh, future Reds players in many cases, and I know the fans... The Dragons fans or Reds fans in general like to follow those players all the way up through the farm system. So we're going to give your group any support and cooperation we can. We're glad that you provide the service you do. Well, thank you very much. Tom, this is your second year with the Dragons, right? That's correct. Second okay, year you've with the Dragons. Worked, you've worked at all levels of baseball, according to your bio. How does Dayton stack up compared to some other places you've worked in terms of the city and the facilities, the fans, players, all, all these kinds of things? Well, I'd have to say, Bill, there's probably two big differences from most other places. And number one would be just the level of interest from a fan's perspective. Of course, the Dragons have sold out 635 consecutive games, which is the longest uh, consecutive sellout streak in professional baseball history. There's no place that would compare with that or even close to it. When you talk about having 8,000 people in the ballpark on a Tuesday night in April when it's 40 degrees outside for a single-A baseball game, you're just not going to see that anywhere else. That would be uh, number one on the list of, of, uh, of things that would be much different than, than probably any place I've seen. And secondly would just be the, the standard of quality that our ownership group, Mandalay, uh, expects from our organization in terms of the way we conduct ourselves. And uh, their attitude is that there's only one way to do things, and that's the right way. And I, I really uh, am proud to, to be part of that and, and I'm thankful that, that they really have, have chosen to invest uh, in their organization the way they have to allow us to really put a quality product out there in terms of operation of the club. The, the Dragons do a lot of, of uh, on-field promotion during the game. Um, if you ask the, the, the management of the, of the Dragons, would you say that they concentrate more on, on the fans in the baseball sense or in the entertainment sense? Well, I don't know that they would they would probably go one direction or the other on that. I guess their attitude is is uh, we want everyone who comes to the game to be entertained, whether they're a baseball fan or not a baseball fan. The baseball is going to take care of itself for the baseball fans. If you're a if you're a Reds fan, you get a chance to come out and see a Todd Frazier or a, a Nepali Soto. Um, that's going to be a, a great thing for you. If you're not a baseball fan and you come out to a game. Uh, the, the organization's approach is that we want everyone to be entertained from, from the perspective of 
quality family entertainment. So even though those of us like yourself and myself, Bill, who really are baseball purists and we probably don't need those other elements uh, to entertain us at a baseball game, we're probably in the minority. And uh, those fans who come out to the game and aren't hardcore fans, we still want those fans to have a good time also. And that's been, of course, a very successful formula for the Dragon. Sure it has, absolutely. Reading your bio, uh, Tom, I saw you've done some hockey. Uh, that was a while ago, yeah, but I did do one season of hockey, and I didn't know a whole lot about hockey when I uh, was asked to do that. Uh, I'd, uh, I'd taken on a double-A baseball job in the Southern League, and our company owned a hockey club, and they said, hey, we need our broadcaster to do both teams. And I said, okay, uh, I'll do that. And, and I learned a lot about hockey over the course of that season, and, uh, and, and it was very, uh, uh, very unique experience and, and one that I'm glad I had a chance to go through. I've been told that announcing hockey is, is maybe the toughest sport to announce. Would you agree with that? Yes. Uh, and I've, done, I've done baseball, basketball, football, hockey. It's not a very media-friendly sport just simply because, for example, uh, uh, take a basketball game. You may have a change in a lineup here and there, and sometimes you may have two or three players even come onto the floor at one time and, uh, in hockey, of course, every 45 seconds to a minute, everybody uh, on the ice uh, is replaced by a new player. So you've really got uh, an entire new lineup to concern yourself with. And, and plus, you're, you're dependent on things like the scoreboard, the public address system to give you key pieces of information that you, you may not otherwise have. Where, you know, in, in baseball, basketball, football, you can pretty much watch the game, and, and, and unless there's a, a very odd play or a unique play, you've got what you need to, to inform the fans of what's happening. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the 2008 Dayton Dragons a little bit, some individual players. Um, Scott Carroll is, is kind of an interesting, controversial story at this point with, his, with a 50-game suspension that he's facing. How much do you think this hurts him with, with the Reds organization? Well, you know, he's, he's still going to get an opportunity. They've got a lot of money invested in Scott Carroll, and, and, and the fact that they used a third-round draft pick on him, um, they, they invested a, a high draft slot in Scott as well. So uh, at the end of his suspension, uh, I'm sure he's going to get an opportunity to try to slide back in. I, I would guess probably in Sarasota, but you never know. Um, he may... He may feel like at that point, or they may feel like that, that uh, if there's a need at uh, Carolina, that, that maybe he would go there. Uh, uh, you know, as you know, Bill, he's a little bit older. Um, he, he played football in college, which set him back a little bit, uh, and, and really hasn't pitched probably as much as uh, someone with a college level of experience coming out of the draft maybe would have. But, uh, you know, a big kid, uh, uh, Reds like him. Uh, and uh, he, his performance will dictate his future, of course, just like any player. Okay. Uh, Zach Kozar, what's the scouting report on Zach, and, and do you think he starts the year in Sarasota? Well, I, I, would, I would think so, just simply because of the fact that uh, they've got so many players that play the same position right around the midpoint of the farm system. When you look at, you look at the strength of the Reds' farm system right now and, and some of the top prospects, you talk about guys like Todd Frazier and, and uh, Francisco and Alonzo, Valeka, and, and then you get to that second tier of Cozart, and, and a lot of those guys are, are 
nearly the same point of their development, and many of them are infielders. Most of them, in fact, are infielders. Uh, he probably would be a guy that if, if there were a, a, a real need to see him jump to double-A, he, he probably, I'm sure, could pull that off. He, he's not going to hit at this point in double-A probably, uh, as, certainly as well as he will in Sarasota. But uh, uh, defensively, we saw him last year enough to know that he's a big league infielder right now. Um, Cozart is a guy who's going to win you games with his glove. Uh, if he can hit 250, 260, he's very much worth having in the lineup. Of course, he hit 280 for the Dragons and was one of our most valuable players. Uh, a good guy off the field, good guy in the clubhouse, going to be a hard worker. Um, and and uh, uh, you cannot teach the skills that he has at shortstop. So uh, that's a guy that I pull for. Uh, I know the Reds, you know, again, used a high draft pick. They've got a lot invested in Cozart, and his bat will dictate how far he can go. Will he be uh, a Yanish-type player who who, uh, who gets to the big leagues and, and, and tries to uh, tries to stay there in the utility role, or will he be a guy that gets there as an everyday player right from the start? I, I guess the future will tell. But uh, this is a guy with certainly the glove to, to – uh, to help a big league club in a big way defensively. And if he can hit enough, he'll be, I think he'll be an everyday player uh, as a big leaguer. Um. Todd Frazier, you, you, when we talked last year, right after Todd, or a while after Todd got called up to, to Double A, you made a comment to me about his uh, the, the the loss of leadership from Todd, the effect on the on the Dragons last year. Um, I hope you remember what I'm remember this comment. Uh, but you thought it really really hurt the team when he got called up because it kind of left him in a vacuum in leadership in the clubhouse. Uh, can you talk oh, about? You might- I'm sorry. Go ahead, Bill. Can you talk a little bit about you know how, what you saw out of, out of Todd Frazier and the time he spent in Dayton? Yes, uh, Todd Frazier uh, is a player that the fans uh, will love. Um, he he has uh, obviously a lot of tangible skills, but his intangibles separate him from almost anyone else that you would see on a field. He he is a guy who is a natural born leader. He's a guy who. Uh, I could see him if he was in a military situation. He's going to be like a platoon leader. He's a guy that everyone else rallies around. Um, he's a very, a very vocal player, uh, but also a guy. I, I like his intangibles on the field. He, he's a great base runner. He, he knows when to take that extra base. He's very instinctive, uh, and uh, a guy that, again, leadership-wise, you, you just can't teach and. The, the big question with Frazier, of course, Bill, as you know, is what position is he going to play? And uh, the Reds feel like, I think, that uh, until there's a clear need somewhere that they can leave him at shortstop and that he can play there, at some point I believe he'll be moved off of shortstop. Uh, and then you look at where's the need going to be. You know, you've got Joey Votto at first base right now who – who could be a you know a, a perennial all-star and maybe an MVP candidate uh, as he moves along. So you've got Votto at first base, and you've got Alonzo, a first-round pick from last year, right behind him at first base. At third base, you've got Encarnacion. You've got Francisco uh, coming along behind him. Uh, you know you could move Frazier to the outfield, which I think would be somewhat of a shame because you're wasting an infielder's hands, and he's an outstanding infielder. He just doesn't have that initial explosiveness, uh, I think, that you need out of a shortstop. He's got the hands, he's got the arm to play short, uh, or to play, uh, to play anywhere in the infield. I, I just look at him as an infielder, and I wonder 
whether he has that explosiveness, first and second step, uh, to, 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 uh, to play shortstop. And uh, so, but this is a guy that's going to play somewhere. He's going to be an outstanding player at the major league level. And, uh, and, and above all that, he's a guy in the clubhouse that is a winner. And, and I think that's very important, and I think the Reds will benefit from having him as part of the organization. If you had to predict, would he start the year in Carolina or Sarasota? Well, that's you said the right word there, predict, because all I'm doing is predicting. Oh, I would have to think. Yeah, I would think that uh, I would think that he probably would start in Carolina, but that's that's strictly one person's guess, and and that's going to be a decision that Terry Reynolds will make in, in conjunction with his managers and coaches. But I, I would have to think that if you look at that Carolina team right now, you could have. Alonzo at first base. You could have Frazier possibly at shortstop. You could have Francisco at third base. Uh, the second baseman in double A might be Drew Anderson. We'll have to see how that plays out. You've also got some other people there like DeJesus and, and Iman uh, and Castro who are going uh, to figure in the equation somewhere. That Carolina team could be a very interesting team. And, and that team might be stocked with more prospects position player-wise, Bill, of any Reds team in the last 10 or 15 years, when you look at some of the names I just mentioned, plus in the outfield, of course, you're going to have Chris Heisey there, um, and, and uh, we'll see what happens with uh, Dan Dorn. He may go to AAA. He probably has earned that. Um, you could have Cumberland back there, possibly. We'll see how that one works out. But a lot of, a lot of players uh, in the AAA outfield picture, certainly more players in the AAA outfield picture than they have spots for in AAA, so it could be that one or two of those players who really deserves to be in AAA will have to, because of the number situation, bounce back to AA. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy Horst is an interesting uh, subject from last year. He, he had an all-around good year, but, I mean, he really, in the second half, opened some eyes, I thought. He was 6-0 and with a 1.57 ERA when he moved into the rotation. How much did his stock rise in the second half last year? Well, with me, it rose a lot. <laughs> I'll tell you that. He, he was outstanding. He was, Horst was as good a pitcher as there was in the league the last month and a half of the season. He was a guy, if you ask me one moment from the 2008 season, it'll stick out my mind. It'll be the moment that Horst came out of the game on, on, uh, well, in, our, in our first playoff game yep. against Lansing because he got a standing ovation from everyone in the house, and it was yep. touching because Horst had gone out that night and really just pitched his heart out. And um, this is a guy who really has come out of nowhere, so to speak, because he came out of a, a small school. He was not a high pick. I think without looking at the notes, I, I, I'm thinking 27th round, somewhere in that range. Uh, and uh, um, started the season in the bullpen. Uh, a left-hander, only an average fastball uh, Maybe he's got the size. Maybe he'll add a mile or an hour or two to his fastball, and maybe it'll at some point be slightly better than an average fastball. But right now, of course, if, you, if you've seen Horse, you know his best pitch is his changeup. And, and right-hand hitters simply could not hit his changeup in, in this league last year. He was dominant. He could throw that changeup. I think he could tell the hitter the changeup was coming. They still couldn't hit it. It was that good a pitch. And uh, right-hand hitters, I think, against Horse for the year were way under 200 in terms of combined batting average. He doesn't have really a great breaking ball at this point, so he doesn't get left-handers out as well as he will right-handers, which, of course, is unusual for a left-handed pitcher, but he's been working on a slider. 
if he can improve that pitch enough that he can get some left-handers out, uh, then, then he, he should climb the ladder quickly. And, uh, you know, I, I like, Bill, I like to look at kind of the eyeball test sometimes, and my eyeballs told me last year the horse could pitch because he was, he was absolutely embarrassing quality Midwest League hitters and guys who are regarded as, as prospects. In other words, I'm talking about you put the best hitter on the other team up against Jeremy Horse, and Horse, uh, more times than not, he was going to win that battle. So that, that tells me that this is a guy that's certainly worth getting an opportunity to move up, and whether it's to Sarasota or to Carolina, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But uh, I look for him to do good things, and I, I'm anxious to follow his season in 2009 and see how he does. Yeah, I was at that playoff game. He, he he threw an incredible ball game that night, and uh, he was a twenty-first round pick. I just I looked real quick while okay. we while we were talking. I've Thank got to ask you. Thanks. I've got to ask you about our two spotlight guys that played for the Dragons last year. Talk a little bit about Matt Clinker and Logan Parker. Okay, good. Uh, well, you know Matt is a guy, and you know him. Uh, you've talked to him many times. Uh, they're both both of those guys are very intelligent guys. Matt is the type of guy you'll see down in the clubhouse reading the Wall Street Journal. Um, and uh, um, he, he's a guy, he's a local product, uh, Westchester, uh, played at Lakota West. And uh, um, his velocity, I think, actually picked up over the course of the season. We know we, when we, by the time we lost him to Sarasota, he was topping out around 93 with his fastball uh, in each start. And, and that's, that's nothing to you know, shake shake a stick at. He was going out there and throwing fastballs by people. He was very good at the, at the end of his time with the Dragons. He was outstanding, in fact. Uh, it took him a little while to get there, uh, and he's a, you know, another big guy, a starter, and uh, again, I'm sure Matt would love the chance to possibly make the Carolina staff. With numbers being what they are, I hope he does, but if he doesn't, he'll go to Sarasota, and, and maybe if he goes to Sarasota, uh, maybe at some point mid-season or so he gets to move up to double-A. Uh, but this is a guy who, uh, very likable person, uh, again, extremely intelligent guy. I think he was a, either a two- or three-time academic all-conference uh, at Furman and uh, um, another guy that the fans would pull for. So we'll see how Matt uh, moves up uh, this coming season. He, he still really would not be a guy that, uh, you know, you look at those baseball America prospect list and you don't see Matt's name on there but if he continues to pitch the way he did the second half of 2008 then then he's earned himself an opportunity to prove what he can do at a higher level. Logan Parker uh, of course started out the 08 season in extended spring training because of a shoulder injury that he had suffered in the playoffs in 07 so he really uh, was behind uh, when, when we started the season. Everybody else had gone through spring training and it had a month or so of the regular season, and, and he comes to Dayton and really hasn't had much of a spring training. So when he came to us, actually I think his first game, and maybe it might have been his first at bat, he hit a home run. But it took him a while to get his average up over the 200 mark. But by the time he really got his timing and got his game together uh, towards the middle part of the season, he was a dominant Midwest League player and, and got back with his draft class at Sarasota, where he would have been all along if not for the injury, and hit quite well there in Sarasota also. Good defensive first baseman, uh, has power, could eventually hit more home runs than he's shown, and he could certainly develop into a 20-home-run-a-year type hitter uh, as he gets a little bit stronger. And, 
the, the one thing maybe with Parker right now that works against him to no fault of his own is uh, they've got Alonzo to play the same position that, that probably will be at the same level. So does that mean Parker goes back to Sarasota? Does it mean Parker's at DH at, at Carolina? Uh, does it mean Alonzo goes back to Sarasota? These are some of the questions you'll see answered. But I'm sure with the Reds at this point that they will put Alonzo, who's their number one pick, at the level that they feel, feel like he needs to be at, and then Parker will kind of slot in wherever there's a spot. And that's just the pecking order of the way things work sometimes. And hopefully, you know, Logan's going to get 400, 450 at-bats in, in 2009 somewhere. And if he goes out there and he's productive, then he's going to continue to rise through the farm system. Another kid that, that came up halfway through the year last year that I really liked is, is Nephi Soto. He, everything he seems to hit, he seems to hit hard. How, how good do you think he can be? And, and will he stay a third baseman, do you believe? I think he'll stay at third base. You know, he, as you know, he was drafted as a shortstop. Um, uh, he, the one negative with Soto is foot speed. He's, he's a little bit below average right now in terms of running speed, and he's probably going to slow down just a little bit more because I think he's going to put on – he's going to fill out. He, he still looks very young. He's, he's only about 180 pounds. He could, he could wind up being 210, 215 very easily. Um, and uh, – um, but as you mentioned, a tremendous hitter. I mean, he came into the Midwest League at midseason, which is a hard thing to do, and he was a dominant player from day one. And he carried our club into the playoffs, and uh, I'll say by the end of the season, there was not a better player in the league than, than, than Soto. And uh, defensively, he's probably at this point what you'd call average, but he's got a chance to be a – uh, a good defensive third baseman. I, I don't look at that as a negative at all. Um, offensively, just a very talented, gifted player. Fans have heard that the ball sounds differently off his bat. That's true. He's got tremendous bat speed um, and uh, a guy who's not going to back down from anybody. I think eventually he'll be a home run hitter. Right now he's, he's probably in that 15 to 20 range. I think eventually that number could increase. Uh, He's not a guy who's going to go up there and swing for the fences. He, at this point, he's a gap-to-gap hitter. But I think as he, as he puts on weight and strength, uh, the, the, the home runs will, will come. And for Soto, again, this is a guy, keep in mind, he's a, he was 19 years old playing in a full-season league and dominating that league. And, and again, I, I mentioned earlier, sometimes I look at the eyeball test, and I, I look out there and I see a player who's leading his team in the playoffs as a 19-year-old. And I see a guy in the middle part of the lineup that, that every pitcher in the league is trying to make sure this is the guy that doesn't hurt me, and yet he goes up there and drives and runs. Uh, so that's a, that's a guy, Soto, that I, I think is a tremendous prospect. You know, Baseball America rated him a little lower than I probably would have. For me, he's got to be in the top five in the Reds organization, uh, certainly maybe a little bit higher than five, um, but I think they had him seven. And I think he, he belongs a little bit higher than that. He's a blue-chip prospect all the way. Was there a dragon that improved more from the beginning of the year to the end of the year than Devin Masarocco? Uh Well, that's a good question. I never thought of that. You know, uh, it, when you talk about improvement, uh, the improvement probably came defensively because he held his own offensively pretty much from day one. Um, his average... 
in the first half was a little higher than it was in the second half. But but that you know there's there's some luck involved there, and I think uh, I think he probably actually hit the ball a little bit harder in the second half. He had his share of of, uh, of 18 hoppers that found a hole in the first half. In the second half, he had his share of line drives right at somebody, and his average actually came down a hair in the second half. But again, I, I wasn't too concerned with that. Defensively, of course, when when we first got him, uh, he had a long way to go, and and that route probably for Mezzarocco uh, is the area that he's going to have to concentrate on defense more than anything. Uh, he, he, I, I have no, no qualms with his offensive skills. I know, you know, because he's a first-round pick, the fans are, are watching closely and there's a lot of pressure on a guy and he goes out there and if he hits 260 as a first-round pick, then you've got people that, that put up the red flag and, and want to say, or the white flag, want to say that that was a bad draft pick. Well, again... This is a guy who was a young player in a full-season league. And offensively, I don't think you can really complain with what he did at all last year. He, he, uh, he came in and held his own and, and, and certainly helped our club. Um, defensively, again, uh, really struggled early on, uh, just receiving pitches more than anything. And uh, uh, he'll get better at that, and uh, that's an area that I hope he, he can continue to improve on. I would expect that he goes to Sarasota and probably puts in a full season there and and they'll work with him as much as possible on improving his receiving skills. As he improves his receiving skills, I think his throwing numbers will improve also because part of the reason that his, his throwing numbers were down a little bit was it looked like it was tough for him to really get his feet in a, in a good position to throw the ball. He, he was concentrating on making sure he received the pitches and, and not always getting his feet in a good position to throw. So his footwork wasn't always real good. Uh, and that will get better as he just gets more comfortable and more confident behind the plate. But uh, another really good guy, you know, comes from a good, hardworking family in Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania High School Player of the Year in, in 07, guy you really pull for. And uh, hopefully, you know, Mesoraco can continue. It's going to be it, – uh, the fans going to have to be a little patient with this player because – it's not going to happen overnight with Mezzarocco. It's going to probably be a level per year, and uh, hopefully as things move along, uh, he can continue to improve and, and someday uh, play with the Reds in Great America Ballpark. It's a different thing with catchers, isn't it? I mean, their, their development is, is generally slower, isn't it? I would think so, especially when you talk about a high school kid. You know, yeah. this is a guy who, who, because he's a first-round pick, probably gets pushed a little bit quicker than – Somebody else might be, and uh, you know I, I can think back to his first game with the Dragons last year, and that night I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the pitcher on the mound is Josh Raven. He's probably the hardest guy to catch on our club because he throws hard, and and his control is not as good as somebody else's. So not an easy guy to catch. And he went out his first first night and. Uh, there were there were a lot of pitches that he did not handle, and I remember going down to the, the, the locker room after the game and talking to the manager, and he said, "Hey, it might have been the first game you've ever played under the lights, and uh, you're, you're talking about a guy who's catching a pitcher thrown in the '90s, um, who's right out of high school, and it's a lot to ask, and uh, uh, so it, it was a difficult transition for him." Uh, there were the fastball 
that was above the belt was seemed to be the pitch that he had the toughest time with early on. But you're right, Bill. He did make a lot of improvement, and I think if you charted the number of pitches that he that he dropped or didn't handle cleanly his first month with the Dragons, that number would have been dramatically lower the last month with the Dragons, and and that's the area he has to just continue to try to improve on. When Matt talked about Matt Clinker talked about Devin. He talked about how much his defense improved from a pitcher's standpoint, and, and he tr- attributed a lot of it to how much work Donnie Scott did with him almost every day out there. You know, we had we had more early work last year, and I got I got to really tip my cap to the organization in terms of the program they've got in place. Uh, we had daily early work. This was not a case of guys just coming out, taking batting practice, infield practice, and then playing the game. Um, Every day, there was extra work being put in in terms of some some skill, whatever it might have been. I mean, we put in more time on our bunting last year as a team, and, and I got to think any you could you'd have a tough time finding somebody else in professional baseball to practice more on just the the, the, the bunting game than the Dragons did. Now it didn't always show up in terms of results, but uh, we, we, though the effort was put in and and. And, uh, of course, as you know, that, that can decide games. That can win or lose ball games for you sometimes, whether you can get a bunt down when you have to in a key situation. And uh, so for our club as a whole, whether it was Mezzarocco or, or anybody else you want to look at, Justin Reed was a guy that was out there every day working as hard as anybody, and, and the whole team was that case. Um, uh, our, this organization expects in the minor leagues expects a lot of that type of thing to go on. And, and uh, so the coaches that come in are, are going to have to be hardworking guys. you got three coaches. you got 25 players. So, um, you know, this year we get a new coaching staff in place. I'm really excited about it. We've got a, a new hitting coach and Tony Jaramillo, who, who is uh, a guy I think is going to really have a bright future. We've got a new pitching coach, Enrico Beltran, who, who uh, another guy I really like, and then Todd Benzinger is our manager, who I think's got a great personality for a manager, and of course certainly has uh, in his history uh, a success at the major league level, long major league playing career. So uh, I'm looking forward to this new coaching staff very much. Going back to, to last year's staff with Donnie, I mean uh, Donnie Scott and his staff, they they'd gotten the Dragons into the playoffs two years in a row. Donnie was is the most successful manager in the Dragons' history. What what do you do? You have any idea what the Reds were looking for that they that they didn't feel they were getting from Donnie and his staff? Why they felt they needed to make this change? No, I, I don't, Bill, and, and probably wouldn't. Uh, if I did, I probably wouldn't get into that at all. That's fine. Absolutely, it. I understand uh, that. That's fine. Yeah, that's. But you know, that's a decision that uh, that uh, is made on an annual basis, and um, and. They uh, they made a decision to go in a different direction there, and hopefully uh, you know it works out best for everyone in, in the long run. And um, and we've got Todd Benzinger coming in this year, and uh, a guy that's really excited about being in Dayton. And, and hopefully you know again with Donnie Scott, uh, hopefully things for him also work out uh, best in the long run. And I know the Dragons organization would wish him the best of luck in the future. Yeah, before we get into the Dragons this year, I-, I wanted to ask you a question about about minor league franchises in general, and that's and that's what, what do major league organizations owe, owe their their minor league franchises fans? Do they owe, owe them you know the 
putting a, a winning, winning team together or just being competitive or giving them the chance to see good players? That is a very good question, Bill. And you're asking a guy who's been in the minor leagues for 22 years. So my answer is probably going to be a little different than than uh, than somebody on the major league side might, might say. But my, my, my answer to that, and this is me speaking personally, not necessarily uh, speaking for the Dragons, but just me speaking uh, from my own perspective, uh, I do think you, you've got a responsibility beyond just going out there and trying to develop 25 players. I think you do have a responsibility to, to try to put a, at least a competitive team on the field. And I, I think if you don't do that, it, it probably hurts the big league club more so than anyone in the long run because players certainly do not develop as well in a losing environment as they do when they're going out there and, and playing uh, close games that are decided uh, in the later innings where the intensity level is high. You know, we had a team in our league last year that had a 13-game losing streak, and their players, prospects or not prospects, uh, there's just no way that, that you're going out there and developing as efficiently and productively in that kind of environment as you would be when you're going out there playing competitive games every night and your hitters are going up there in the late innings with men on base with a chance to drive in a, uh, a, a, a game-tying or tie-breaking run and the pitcher is doing everything he can. You know, that kind, those are the kinds of situations in which players develop not going up there and, and batting in a, in a situation where the uh, score's 9-1 to one and you're down and the opposing pitcher is just trying to get the game over, uh, that, that's not the same kind of development. And uh, so I, I really am a big believer from my time in the minor leagues that, that you develop your players much better in a, a competitive environment in which winning, you know, there's, there's certainly a something to be said about about teaching how to win, and, and 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 I think if you talk to somebody like a Todd Frazier, he's a guy that really stars in that moment in time when games are decided. That's when his that's when the cream comes to the top, and uh, and when you get players who who have been in that situation, they learn how to handle the pressure of the situation. Uh, it helps them down the road. You know, we had, a, we had a game last year, I will not forget, um, late in the season, we were in uh, Midland, uh, Michigan against the Great Lakes Loons, and it was a key game for us as we were trying to get in the playoffs. And our closer, uh, Augusto Gonzalez, who had a tremendous last month with the Dragons, uh, is on the mound, and there's a huge crowd that night uh, in Great Lakes. Uh, you're talking... Six, seven thousand streaming fans. That's a ninth inning, and they've got the bases loaded with the tying run on third and the winning run on second. In the ninth inning, bottom of the ninth, fans absolutely going nuts. And here's a guy on the hill in a hostile environment that's got to figure out how to reach back and find something extra and get a hitter out and keep that run from scoring. And he did it. He did it strictly. I think just out of the competitiveness that he was able to find within himself in that situation, and that, that told me something about Gonzalez, is this is a guy who's got a little something extra. And, and that's something, you know, you cannot artificially create that environment. You get it only in the game situation, and, and that's really when the player development process is at its peak. Okay, I, I, and I agree with you. I, and, you know, and as someone that 
buy, that is a partial season ticket holder for the Dragons, I've been through the good and the bad, and the good's a lot more fun. <laughs> There's no question about that. I, I can tell you, as a broadcaster, the uh, the enjoyment level you get out of uh, broadcasting a team that's competitive and winning games, and as opposed to you know stretch we went through last year after we lost Frazier and Carroll and Del Rosario and uh, and uh, Valacat and a number of other players, we lost all those guys all at one time, and I think we went through a stretch where we were something like six and twenty-six. Uh, in uh, the second half of May and first half of June, and and that was a tough thing for the players, for the broadcasters, for everybody. You're going to have that once in a while. That's just the nature of the beast. Uh, when you move players up, it takes a little bit of time to sort of reestablish the chemistry of your team, and um, and so that's an understandable part of minor league baseball. And we went through that, and fortunately, we were able to bounce back when we got Soto, and we got you know, Lots Car was pitching well. And, uh, and Parker started playing well, and, and some of these other guys. Horse went in the starting rotation, and once he went in the rotation, that really helped the Dragons. We got Aguido Gonzalez, and we got Mace Thurman from Billings, and that, those things really helped our club. And I really felt like at the end of last season that we were as strong as anybody in the Midwest League, but we ran into a tough South Bend team in the playoffs and, and uh, just couldn't go any further. You mentioned Mace Thurman. I, I... That's the best name, best baseball name I've ever heard. I love that baseball name. <laughs> yeah, he's a good guy too. He's another one of those guys that the fans knew him. You know, we had a lot of high character guys on our team last year, and it's just a shame sometimes that as a fan you don't get an opportunity to really get to know a player. But uh, um, I talk with our, our beat writer from time to time, Mark Katz, and, and he'll tell me. And of course, like you, like you mentioned, this is just my second year with the Dragons, and and he'll tell me about. Some of the guys over the years that have come through that he would consider to be extremely high-character players that, that you really put your money on in terms of what they will do for you at the major league level. He's talking about guys like Paul Yanish and, and Joey Votto, uh, Todd Frazier being that same category. These are guys who are just hardworking guys who are winners. But Mace Thurman, getting back to Mace, uh, Really, I felt pitched a lot better than his number. His final numbers indicated uh, with us last year. He had great numbers at Billings, and he came to the Dragons in kind of a middle relief to setup role, seventh, eighth inning type pitcher, and uh, he, he really pitched well. He had a couple of games where uh, where either either number one he left a couple of guys on bases, inherited runners that eventually scored, uh, and they got charged to his earned run average, or B just a couple of uh, broken bad hits here and there that, that led to runs. And I, I, I can remember three or four times him coming out of an outing and saying on the radio, you pitch much better than those numbers would indicate. Uh, but this is a guy, again, left-handed pitcher. We may see him possibly as a starter, I'm told, in, in uh, 2009. Wouldn't be a surprise at all to me if he didn't come back to Dayton and play for the Dragons. He was only with us for a few weeks last year. And... Uh, Another guy that's worth following. If you're a Reds fan, that's a guy that's got a chance. Based on what you've heard, you know, and looking at the stat sheets from Billings and from the, the Gulf Coast League Reds, can you tell us some guys that you think will be Dragons this year that you think the fans will, will be interested in? Be happy to. I can just look down at, at a list I have of, of possible Dragons for this season. Of course, the players report on March the 10th. Uh, as we record this interview, uh, that is uh, coming up. So um, spring training, as we record the interview today, hasn't started. 
And a lot of these decisions will be made based on player performance, but a lot of it really also, I'm sure, has already been made based on just simply looking at where these players probably should be in terms of their development, their age, their experience level, and what they did last year. When you look at our club, um, I think if you look at the infield, uh, the big name that stands out is Alex Buckles, who played at the University of Delaware and, uh, and hit 396 at Billings last year. Uh, maybe a second baseman, maybe a shortstop, depending on, on how things fall there. But that's a guy uh, offensively that I really look forward to seeing play. Uh, outside of uh, Buckles, you look at the rest of the infield, the first baseman, I think you've got to figure will probably be uh, Mike Constanti, who was a big home run hitter, set his college uh, school record last spring in home runs, and then went to Billings and hit some home runs there. He figures to be a, a first baseman for the Dragons. Look at the rest of the infield. The, the question would be, will Soto come back to Dayton or will we go to Sarasota? If he comes back to Dayton, I think he's the best player in the Midwest League from day one. Uh, if he goes to Sarasota, he, he should do well there also. Uh, uh, but uh, there's a chance that Soto comes back to play third base. And then the other infielder, uh, you've got a, a guy, uh, Cody Puckett, also a 2008 draft pick that, that really did well in his first season of pro ball and had a great college career at Cal State Dominguez Hills. Uh, so those would be four infielders. I think uh, the guy that might be as interesting as anyone, though, Bill, would be uh, a young shortstop they have named uh, Rojas, who Terry Ryan says has as good a hand, I think he said he had the quickest hands of anyone he'd seen in his 30 years uh, in baseball. So uh, just obviously a guy who defensively at shortstop would be a pleasure to watch. The question is going to be, will he hit well enough uh, to even move up to this level in 2009? He hit under 200 at Billings in 08, so they might possibly send him back for another year to, at Billings. Uh, if, he, if he shows something in spring training, he may come to Dayton, and we'll get to see him play in Dayton. I look forward to seeing it. When I hear a guy who's been in baseball for 30 years like Terry Reynolds tell me that this guy does something better than anyone he's ever seen, that's a guy I look forward to seeing play at some point in the future. So that could be our infield. You've got some other players that uh, uh, could also factor in either as a starter or a utility uh, 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 player by the name of Mendez. A kid by the name of Waldron, those are players who were at Billings last year and, and played well enough to maybe justify them up to date. Then the outfield, David Sapelt, who was out of Coastal Carolina, a finalist for the Golden, I'm sorry, a semi-finalist for the Golden Spikes Award last spring, uh, would certainly be uh, in our picture. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, Tyler Stovall from Cincinnati, Moeller High School, that you've had conversations with on your website, is in the picture. Uh, Tony Brown, another guy who hit really well at Billings last year. Byron Wiley, another 300-plus hitter at Billings. These are all guys in the Dayton outfield picture. Uh, an interesting name would be Andrew Meads, who was uh, at Indiana University, and a, uh, an outfielder there, but also played football and led their team in uh, receptions as a wide receiver. Uh, he went to the scouting combine, so there's a good chance he, he's going to be drafted in the NFL. If that happens, then you may see him go... Uh, to a football career, we'll have to wait and see how that one plays out. And then also on the list as an outfitter would be another local product, Matt Stippler, who's from Dayton and could be a, another name in the outfield picture. At the catcher position, they really got four players probably battling for two or three jobs. Uh, Kyle Day out of Michigan State University was 
a guy who was drafted last June and, and went to Billings, hit, hit the ball well there. And uh, you, you've also got a, a younger player by the name of Weidman, who uh, I know the Reds really like. And then two other draft picks last season from, from uh, the June draft of 2008, uh, Chris McMurray and Kevin Coddington. These are, again, guys who will be battling for a spot on the Dayton roster uh, among that catching core, which looks like a very competitive group right now in spring training. That will be our position player group. And then on the mound, you know, the big guy that we may get back if, uh, if things go this way would be Kyle Lotzgar. He made 10 starts for us last year. Of course, he's a guy that Baseball America rates in the top 10, the Reds organization, and we may get him back as a starter. And uh, there's some other younger guys. I, I mentioned uh, uh, Mace Thurman would be possible to come back. Would not be surprised at all if Augusto Gonzalez did not come back as our closer. He really pitched well for us in a short time last year. Uh, you've got a young guy that the fans probably aren't real familiar with yet by the name of uh, Matt Farrell, who was 12-2 and two at Florida State last year and did not sign until after the season completed. So he has not pitched yet professionally. They had a real good season at a strong school, and I would expect that there's a good chance he would come to Dayton. And again, I'm looking at... Uh, these names off of uh, the roster of minor league players and just trying to project the same as other fans out there might be sure. in terms of who might be coming to Dayton. You think there's? You think we might get Juan Carlos uh, Subarana? Well, there's a possibility of that. You know, he uh, uh, is another guy that, that the Reds invested a lot of money in. You know, right now he's playing for the Netherlands, I believe, the national team in the World Baseball Classic. And uh, a young guy, uh, 19 years old, and they'll take a look at him in spring training. It could be that uh, because of the fact that he'll be away for a bit of spring training, although the Netherlands may not. They did win a game against the Dominican Republic, which is a huge upset, but they, if they don't make it to the second round, he'll be back in camp pretty much uh, almost on time. So they'll get a good long look at him, um, and uh, we'll see how he does. You know, another young guy that uh, – We'll, uh, we'll be given a shot maybe would be uh, Evan Hildenbrandt and uh, another young player, a high school pick from 07, will be competing for a roster spot too. And he had a good year last year, mostly one level below Billings with the Gulf Coast leg red. So we'll see how, how that one pans out. You've got probably 15 or 16 guys or maybe even a few more than that competing for 12 spots on the Dayton pitching staff. It's maybe a little more competitive than it was last year just in terms of Having uh, they, they signed more pitchers last year in the draft than they did in, in, in the previous season. So you've got a lot of names, the guys who pitched it at Billings uh, and some who pitched with the Gold Coast League Reds that uh, could possibly move up. You've got one guy who missed all of last season with an injury, Scott Gaffney at the Reds' light. He was a shortstop at Penn State. They converted him to pitcher. And uh, they like him. He could be a member of the Dayton bullpen possibly as well. So uh, uh, any number of players that uh, would be in competition, uh, they like a guy named Leo Astorga, who was a starter at Billings last year. Uh, I think uh, one of the coaches told me that he thought he, he could come to, to Dayton and really be a, a strong Midwest League pitcher as a starting pitcher. We'll see how that goes. So over these next few weeks, a lot of that will be sorted out, and, and we'll get our club I think the club scheduled to arrive in Dayton on April the 6th. Before we get off of the the, the 09 team, uh, Kyle Otsker, I mean, I, my guess is he, he comes back to Dayton this year. I, I don't see 
with less than 70 innings thrown last year, how they, you know, that they would promote him as young as he is. Do you, do you see this as a big year for him in terms of his well, development? Yeah, yes, he's still a young guy. Uh, so what he needs to do is, is just continue to improve and, and get better. And, you know, he's not a guy I don't think that you're going to see in Cincinnati within a year or two. He's, he's further down the road. Uh, I mean, he's, he's only 19 years old. So uh, even though this would be his third year of professional baseball, he was a young draft pick, uh, a Canada a native, and um, we saw improvement from him over his last three starts last year. Uh, and uh, he made only 10 starts with the Dragons. Uh, it was on a pretty strict pitch count. And, with you know, sometimes with guys with real good stuff, Bill, one of the, one of the issues that you get into is they've got such good stuff that, that they, their pitch counts are high. They don't get a lot of first and second pitch outs. And, and so they end up throwing 20, 25 pitches in an inning and uh, and then and then by the time they get to their pitch count, you're in the third or fourth inning, and, and and you look back and you say, well, he only won a couple of games. Well, he only got to the fifth inning as a starting pitcher, uh, you know, two or three times, so he wasn't eligible for the win uh, very many times, really, over the course of his entire career on the Reds organization. They're going to take it very slow and very careful with a guy like Lotzgar. Again, they've got a lot of money invested in this player, and. Uh, um, uh, this is a guy that I, you know, if he comes back to Dayton again and picks up where he left off last year, then you may see him move up to uh, to Sarasota uh, before the end of the the '09 season, maybe maybe somewhere towards the middle. When when the team goes on the road, do you travel with the team? Yes, I'll broadcast the games on uh, on WIMG radio. You can also get all our, our game broadcasts home and road on the internet at DaytonDragons.com. So for any fans who'd like to listen to the home or road games this season, all 140 games will be available on our website. And we encourage the fans to do that and, and follow some of these prospects with us. Do you actually like travel on the team bus? Yes, I do. Okay. I have to ask, how is okay. it tra- traveling with how, this many young guys and how much patience does it require over the course of a season? You know, they're... Again, this is a this is a good group of guys. Uh, we did not have. I've been doing this a long time, so I've seen a lot of things. <laughs> we, I've seen I've seen fights break out on buses before. I've seen I've seen uh, different situations evolve. But this group last year was a good group of guys. Never the first issue. Never any problems whatsoever. Guys got along well. Um, the travel in the Midwest League is is not too bad. Uh, uh, most of our bus trips are in the four to five hour range, so. Uh, it's not too bad. Now, uh, when I was in the Northern League, we had 17-hour bus trips into into uh, Winnipeg, and and those are long bus rides. 17 hours on a bus without an off day, that's tough. Um, when I was in the Southern League in Mobile, uh, our bus trips into Carolina were 12 hours. So again, long time on a bus. Uh, but uh, the Midwest League isn't too bad, uh, and uh, um, our this team. Uh, whether it's been intentional or not, I can't say, but the Reds have, for the most part, selected high-quality people in recent years. And the group we had last year was, was a pleasure to, to be with and travel with. And when I was on the bus, uh, you know, there's, there's a DVD player on those buses, and, and uh, so you're just generally going to sit down, sit on the bus and ride down the road and watch movies for three or four hours, and, and that's about it.
can you give us your your game day routine and what 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 you do you know when you get to the ballpark what you do when you get there and, and what the difference is between a home and a road game for you well the, the main difference i guess between home and road would just be uh, uh for a road game uh, i'm leaving uh the hotel usually at generally it's going to be at 2 30 or 3 o'clock in that range for the ballpark and for a home game I'm going to be at the ballpark by noon every day. Um, my routine each day, you know, I've got, a, I've got a, a, an assistant that works with me in the media relations department that I, I depend on, especially because I am on the road 50% of the time. Last year was a youngster by the name of Owen Seary, who now is the voice of the South Penn Silverhawks in Midwest League. And he's We're a great guy. Owen. Yeah, good Owen's guy. Owen's a great uh, guy. Um, and we're proud of the fact that he was able to go out this year uh, and get his own number one radio position with a team in, in our league. And I have a, a replacement that I'm, I'm really looking forward to working with. He's actually started in our office now by the name of Alex Misfoli. And these guys are very, uh, very helpful in terms of handling any media relations calls that would come in, uh, whether it's an, an out-of-town newspaper looking to set up an interview with a player or wanting a, a photograph, an action shot, or a headshot of a player from their hometown, maybe a radio station from the area or outside the area looking to set up an interview with a player. Uh, we'll handle anything like that. Any other questions that come into our media relations department, uh, credential requests that come in, uh, those types of things. Uh, also, uh, you know, and I'd be happy to share this with any of the fans that would uh, enjoy seeing it, we put together each day a very detailed game notes packet that's going to be about 12 to 15 pages of, of notes in terms of hitting streaks and uh, who's hot, who's cold, uh, just general information, biographical information on uh, the players and uh, um, it really is for the broadcasters uh, to help them do their broadcasts uh, each night and, and help them fill in some of the slower spots in the game and when a player comes up to bat, um, and then he's got some information to talk about. But that, that's another, that, that'll take me a, an hour and a half or so each day to put that together. Uh, then you spend some time down in the clubhouse talking with the players, talking with the, the coaches to get information for your broadcast. You do your pregame interview, um, and maybe during batting practice, stand around the cage and, and again, uh, discuss maybe the previous night's game a little bit with some of the players and coaches. And, uh, and I am looking forward to this coaching staff this year because that makes our job a lot easier when we have coaches who like to talk to us about uh, the game and the team and, uh, and that sort of thing. And sometimes we, we can't always you know, use on the air everything we're told, but uh, uh, we, uh, we filter that through, and, uh, and that makes the job a lot more fun for us and we're able to develop uh, some trust factor with the coaching staff and, and, and it helps the listeners uh, maybe get some insight into what's going on sometimes. But then, you know, once you get to, uh, by now you're, you're probably to somewhere around 5.30 and you go up and, and uh, there's a broadcaster. You, you spend uh, at least a half an hour or so putting your scorebook together every night. The fans may think that's a little unusual, but uh, you want every note you can have in that book so that when it, when it comes up in the game, you don't have to be shuffling through papers looking for it. You can just instantaneously relay that on the fans. And the game starts, and, and, and then following the game, it's our responsibility in our department to send out a, uh, a full-page uh, 
story on the game, along with the box score to our media list. And, uh, and then finally you go home maybe around 11.30 at night. So all in all, you're going to be at the ballpark for a home game somewhere around 11, 12 hours each day. And uh, that goes on for, uh, uh, you know, 140 games. Now, one thing, Bill, this season's a little different. I noticed this when the schedule came out. Uh, we have a Sunday in April that's an off day this year, which for me, that'll be the first time since 1987 that I've had either a Saturday or a Sunday off during the baseball season. So think about that for a minute. That's a long time to go without a weekend day off, but uh, your family a Sunday your, off in April. Your family won't know what to do with you that day. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, uh, that's, part of, uh, that's part of the territory of, of uh, being involved in minor league baseball, and, and you certainly don't have any complaints. But from April through uh, Labor Day, it's a, it's a daily process, and I'm fortunate that I've got a great group of uh, people to work with and work for the Dragons office. Uh, our, our president, Bob Murphy, our executive vice president, Eric Deutsch, our general manager, Gary Mays, and all of our staff. We've got 36 full-time staff members in the office, great people to work for and work with, and it makes my job uh, that much easier. If you're in a situation, and I've been in this situation before, where you've got people uh, that you, you have a tough time working for, or maybe a coaching staff, you get a tough time. Uh, they don't really like media members, and there are coaches like that out there. Uh, you, uh, it, it, makes it, it makes it tough to go through that, that number of games. And uh, I'm fortunate in, in Dayton I've had, had the good life. Now that you've been around the, the entire Midwest League, do you get, are you spoiled by Dayton's facilities? Is there anybody else in the league that's facilities compare with the with the facilities in Dayton? Our facility is outstanding. There are probably two or three others that, that are uh, somewhat similar. Um, uh, from a fan's perspective, Dayton is the only double-decker ballpark I can think of at the single-A level, and that we have uh, you know we've got the suites up top, but we also have seating in front of the suites. Um, so. Yeah, next to the double-decker ballpark. But, uh, uh, of course, I spend my time in the press box every night in the, in the broadcast booth. So, really, I'm confined within the four walls of the home radio booth, and that's my office uh, from, from really 6 o'clock until 11 o'clock each day. And, yes, uh, when it, there are places that you go out to to no fault of their own uh, that, that just maybe uh, have not had the opportunity to upgrade their facility. And you go there, and, and then you come home and, and get to work uh, at fifth, third field. Yes, you do get a little bit spoiled sometimes by that, no question about it. And and uh, that's why it is nice always to come home. That's why that's why anytime the, the ball club's on the way home after that last game of a road trip, it's always a, a little bit more of an upbeat at, atmosphere on the bus after that last game because you're looking forward to getting back home. We talked earlier about the 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 amount of talent the Reds seem to have in the organization at shortstop and, and at third base. And, and there are some questions about the, the depth of talent in the outfield in the organization. I mean, Stubbs is, is no doubt the number one outfielder, and then I don't know who would be number two. I would guess Danny Dorn. And who who would you think would be three if you had to pick a, a third-rated outfielder in the system right now? Well, that's a good question. Um one thing I hesitate to do a little bit uh, is is really say too much about guys that I have not seen mm. play because uh, all you're really you've got to go on is is what somebody else wrote or what Baseball America 
uh, did with their ratings. And sometimes, you know, I looked at some of the Baseball America rankings, and, uh, you know, they're doing the best they can. But sometimes the people that give them information have agendas. Uh, and, and so sometimes uh, players get rated maybe higher or lower than they, they might otherwise justify. But you look at, certainly you look at the organization, uh, I would have to think, uh, to answer your question, probably, I think most people would probably say that Chris Heisey. Yeah, that's who uh, I would guess, would, too. Would be probably number three. You know, off of our club last year, uh, of the guys I got a chance to see every day, um, you know, Dennis Phipps was a guy that entering the season, there were, there were a number of people within the Reds organization that really expected Dennis to take a big step forward in, in 2008 from where he had been in 07. And, and the consistency, for whatever reason, he just never was able to find that. And his numbers uh, didn't necessarily improve a lot from 07 to 08. But he was a talented guy uh, in terms of, of uh, physical skills, in terms of just simply the tools. Incredible uh, arm. Yeah, great arm. Uh, can run well. Um, uh, and there were people that really liked Dennis. There were, there were people within the Reds organization that, that mentioned to me that they thought Dennis Phipps was the best prospect on that team uh, at different points last year. Now, he wasn't the best prospect when Frazier was there, uh, but at different points there were people that mentioned that to me. And I, I think at the end of the season that he probably uh, would look back and say that he didn't necessarily take a step forward in terms of emerging as a prospect. But uh, we had our center fielder, Justin Reed, who, uh, who's an interesting guy. You know, he is a very interesting prospect. He, he did not hit for batting average the way he would have liked, and his strikeout totals were way too high. But he has, he's, he's an absolute gold lover defensively. He's a tremendous athlete, best athlete on the club last year by far. This is a guy who, who rushed for 400 yards in a high school football game, and you can see why, because he, he's a very fluid player, very agile player. Uh, really, I think, uh, and, and if, if he was here right now, he may agree with me, he may disagree with me, but uh, I think uh, has to probably learn uh, that his speed is his number one tool offensively and, and utilize his speed more uh, then, then uh, I don't look at him as a 20 home run guy uh, down the road. But I do look at him as a guy who could play the small man's game very effectively and and and, and be a, a strong hitter once he really learns that style of offensive play. And he's got to make a lot more contact. When you talk about 140 or so strikeouts over the course of a season, that for a contact hitter, that's that's not what you're looking for. But uh, you know, he was, again, another guy that was a high draft pick, and you can see why, because you see the skills. Those were two of our outfielders. Uh, you also had, uh, for a short time, Daniel Perales, who was the guy that the Reds got in the John Kulangas trade uh, 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 the first week or so of the season and was injured. They really liked him when they got him from Arizona. They really felt like he had a good chance to play in the big league someday. He never really was able to get healthy and eventually went to uh, Sarasota and, and uh, did not have the kind of year that he would have hoped. Now, you go back with Perales to 07 when he was in the Midwest League with South Bend, I think he finished second in the league in the MVP voting in 07. Um, and, and they expected you know that kind of productivity in 08, but he never really was quite able to get healthy. So he could be a guy that in 09 
maybe he should, he, he bounces back to that form of, of, of 07 where he's going to hit close to 300 with a little power and a lot of RBIs, uh, and, and then he will start to emerge again. So those are some of the guys that we had in the outfield at, at Dayton last year. Um, uh, Brandon Menchaca was another guy who came in and, and just never really quite got on track. Uh, and uh, uh, his situation for 09, uh, he'll have to probably earn a job in spring training, and we'll see how, how far that can take him, and, and hopefully for Brandon's sake, uh, he'll, he'll have a strong spring. We were we were talking via email, you and I, about uh, about Louisville, and 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 I made a point. I, I said something about Andrew Pettijohn and his age, and uh, you said something real interesting to me that I'd like to have you explain to the people listening. You told me that under Terry Reynolds, the Reds minor league system has made a concerted effort to get younger, but you also said you felt that older players like Kevin Barker and Andrew Pettijohn have value to the organization. Can you explain this? Yes, uh, I feel pretty strongly on that on both counts. Uh, the Reds have uh, really made a, an effort to get younger, and, and I think that's a good thing. And the fans uh, who follow the minor leagues, I think, really appreciate that. You, you want to have a majority of your minor league players obviously being at the age that a prospect should be at that level. In other words, if he's in, if he's in double A, he's in that 23, 24, 25 range. If he's in triple A, a year or so older, if he's in Dayton, he's in that uh, anywhere from uh, 19 to 22, 23 range. If he's in Sarasota, again, in that uh, no older maybe than about 24. Uh, you want most of your players to be in that range. And, and for a long time, uh, the Reds did not have that for whatever reason. Uh, but they have made the effort to, to get younger. Uh, uh, one member of the organization told me last year that, that – uh, that they were younger at AA and AAA last year than they, than they had been in, in, in decades. And I, I think that's a good thing. You know, I can think back to when I was growing up in, uh, in the Indianapolis area, Bill, and going out to uh, Old Bush Stadium, and you, you saw the Reds AAA club there, mm-hmm. and most everybody on the field was still in that 23-24 range. I'm thinking back to guys like Nick Isaski and Gary Redis and uh, uh, Tom Foley, um, and Dave Van Gorder, um, Paul Householder, Dwayne Walker. These were all guys that got to the big leagues with the Reds, and they were all young players in AAA, 22, 23, 24 years old. And, and then they went through a stretch there where you saw guys in AAA that were 30, 32 years old. And, uh, and, and when the whole team is in that age range, then that's obviously not a good thing. But on the other hand, to go back to my statement earlier, I'm also a big believer that you need some of those older guys, and I talked about Adam Pettijohn and Kevin Barker, you need players like that on a AAA club because they help your prospects develop. They, they make your team better, and they help your prospects develop in a winning atmosphere and a competitive atmosphere, and they also keep your AAA team happy because uh, they, they keep your organization happy because you're putting a competitive team out on the field. And, and if you've got a position where you don't necessarily have a prospect to put out there on the field, and every team has that no matter how deep your farm system, I don't see anything wrong with bringing in a player who's a little bit older, if he can help your team be a competitive winning team because he's going to help your prospects develop more efficiently. He's going to make your prospects better players in the long run because the team is going to be better. 
and the, the atmosphere is going to be a more positive atmosphere for those players. So I, I like having, uh, you know, again, the key is you don't want to, you don't want your whole team to be too old for that level, but if you can have a few guys who are all-star quality players in that league, um, they're going to help your prospects develop a lot better than, than they would if the team was you know, 10, 15, 20 games under 500. You spent um, eight seasons in the Southern League, I think. How big, a, lo- how big a loss was losing the, chair, uh, the, the Chattanooga franchise for the Reds? Well, uh, I, I really hesitate to answer that beyond just what, what I could tell you from my experience, and, and that would be that that was a very centrally located uh, city and uh, the travel was pretty good from, from Chattanooga. You had uh, Birmingham, and you had uh, the Knoxville team, and you had the Huntsville team, and you had the West Penn team, um, all fairly close uh, within two or three-hour bus ride. Uh, and that Carolina, uh, uh, geographically, that team is a little bit further out, um, and that will make things a little tougher. But... At the same time, who knows? Uh, I'm not, certainly not going to base everything uh, on geographics. I know some of those people in Carolina; they're good. They're good people, and and as are the Chattanooga guys. Because I, I, like you said, I I was in that league for eight years, so I I know a lot of the people in those front offices in both cities, and uh, they're good people in both places. And and so uh, uh, maybe the Reds will. Uh, you know, you never know how things are going to work out. Travel-wise, it's going to be a little tougher. There's no question about that. But yeah. whether that makes the whole situation um, not as favorable, uh, certainly it'd be totally presumptuous for me to make a statement like that. So, yeah, uh, I, I, I didn't mean to insinuate that there was anything wrong with the Carolina franchise. Yeah. It's just that, right. as you said, centrally located versus you know more uh, further travel time. You know, the Chattanooga right. is a bigger city. That you're probably going to play in front of more fans. That's the kind of thing I was thinking about. Yeah, there are. You can make up a short list of uh, of different qualities that a a farm director maybe would look at uh, as being beneficial, uh, and, and some of the things would be, um, you know, is there an airport close by? Uh, because you're you're constantly flying players in and out. That would mm-hmm. be one. Uh, another would be. Uh, the, the, the clubhouse facilities where the players spend a lot of their time, are they, are they top-notch? Is the playing surface, especially for the infielders, is the playing field well-maintained so that the players can develop on a, on a quality field? Um, is the front office uh, a good group of people that's easy to work with and, and pleasant to work with and not, and not try to tell you how to do your job in terms of the baseball side? Um, uh, there would be several other things there. Uh, you know, fan support. You, you, the more fans on the field, the more of a big league environment it creates for the players, and, and the more uh, the more bats in uh, in high pressure situations that are close to emulating a big league situation. Uh, all these things would go into uh, uh, the, uh, the the most favorable affiliate situation, and there's some on the list that I, I probably am overlooking right now that the Reds would point out right away, but uh, those would be some of the things on the list, and uh, um, 
those are, are all issues that the Reds would, would look at, I'm sure. And they've got a, an agreement with Carolina, who's now part of the Reds family. So um, I, uh, that's uh, that's a nice place to, you know, I remember going in there and they upgraded that facility uh, about five years ago, something like that. And uh, um, the broadcaster there is a guy you should talk with also by the name of Pat Keenis. Good guy. He'll, he'll give you some good information on how some of the Reds prospects develop in AA this year. Uh, and a uh, very professional, very talented broadcaster. If some of the fans are able to listen to Patrick on the air, they'll enjoy his broadcast for sure. Uh, so that, that's the direction it's going, and, and uh, hopefully you know, nothing but the best there. From your experience, what would you guess or what, what, what would you think is the biggest jump for a player between which levels? Good question. Uh, probably, uh, my experience would probably tell me high A to double A, but uh, the, the correct answer probably uh, would be triple uh, A to major league. But uh, um, uh, from my experiences, I've seen a lot of players come out of the high A levels with good numbers. Uh, and that didn't always mean a whole lot in double-A. Like you mentioned, I was in the Southern League in double-A for eight years, and, and, and I, I can think back to time after time where our club would get a, maybe a pitcher from, from the California League that had outstanding numbers, and he would, and he would get the double-A and just couldn't cut it because you can, you can get by with things, obviously, at the single-A level that you're never going to get by with in double-A. And that's why, you know, that's why organizations look so closely at tools, because a guy, you know, a guy who doesn't have above-average tools uh, might get by in single A and look good numbers-wise, but when he gets to double A, they're probably going to catch up to that, um, and vice versa. Uh, maybe a guy who's got an outstanding arm, but really isn't a refined player uh, as a pitcher at the single A level, uh, when he moves up, if he's able to. To, uh, to, to get a little bit of refinement. He's got that great arm to fall back on. And, uh, you know, you can look to any number of big league players. Look at a guy like a John Smoltz, who's had a Hall of Fame career, and, and his ERAs in the minor leagues were, were in the fives, high fives in some cases. Uh, it just took a little bit longer, but the ability was always there. And, and so I think... Uh, that's why you can't, and I'm, you know, in this day and age uh, with the Internet, it's easy to follow the players statistically. It's a lot easier to follow them statistically than it is watching the games themselves, obviously, in other cities. And it's a big mistake, in my opinion, to put too much into statistics when you're talking about um, trying to rate prospects and players uh, because everything doesn't always translate from one level to the next. That's part of it. Statistics are certainly a part of it, but you have to look at the player and what he can do on the field and watch him play before you really can make a judgment on where he stacks up in terms of prospect standing. Okay, Tom, one more thing before I let you go here today, and that's something that's very exciting that's happening in Dayton on April the 4th. The Reds, the Futures game. Tell us how this came about. That is a very exciting thing. I'm glad you brought that up, Bill. On April the 4th, the Reds Bigley Club will come to Dayton on a Saturday afternoon at 3 o'clock and play a game against a collection of their top prospects from all levels, single A, double A, triple A, 
It's not really an all-star team in terms of the best minor league players. Otherwise, it would be all AAA players. It's a collection of top prospects. So you'll see some single-A players on that club, on that prospects team. Um, and this, this developed really in discussions between our front office, Bob Murphy, uh, Gary Mays, and the Reds, uh, uh, the Castellinis, and, and, and in terms of trying to uh, maximize our partnership. And uh, uh, for the Reds and the Dragons, uh, this is a, a great thing. And it's something that up until this season, I don't think uh, I don't think I'd ever heard of anything like this. So I'm really excited about it. I know the fans are, too. Uh, you've never really seen a chance to watch a group of prospects on a field uh, against a major league club uh, in, a, in a setting like this. So uh, we do have some tickets. And, again, we, we air this, uh, we record this interview on uh, the 9th of March. And this coming Saturday, the 14th, tickets will go on sale for this game. So if there are fans listening in the, uh, in the Dayton area and get a chance to get out and purchase tickets on the 14th, I uh, would encourage you to do so, and it should be a great day for baseball. Do you know how they're going to determine the, uh, who makes the Futures team? I believe uh, that is done. Uh, I think Terry Reynolds was heavily involved in that, but, but uh, probably in the end it would be a, a decision that would be signed off on by Walt Jockety. Um, but uh, I, I do know that they have, again, made an attempt to uh, sort of uh, uh, look at and, and spotlight the top prospects. So I guess if you're a if you're a player, I know Matt Clinker told you that he really was hoping to get a chance to play in that game. If you're a player and you get selected, it, it's it's definitely uh, uh, a shot in the arm as far as uh, confidence. Um, it's a little bit like uh, maybe. You know, in every year in instructional league, the organization selects players to go to instructional league. Players uh, probably would prefer, uh, if all were said, and, uh, said honestly, to have that time off. But nobody wants to not be selected. Everybody wants to be the guy who's picked because they, they pick the guys that they feel like uh, maybe have the best future. And, uh, uh, so you want to be picked for instructional league, and, and for this even more so. Uh, um, you want to be picked because it says to you that the Reds really consider you to be one of their top prospects for the future. Yeah, it should be an exciting day in at Fifth Third Field. Let's hope we get good weather that day. Tom, I hear you on that. Tom, I, again, I want to thank you and the Dragons for your support of Red Leg Nation, and we really appreciate it. And, and we really appreciate the kind this this long interview that you've given us today. And hopefully, we can talk again sometime this season. Thanks very much. No problem. We look forward to seeing you out at some games this summer, Bill. And, and uh, same thing with all the fans who are listening. If you can't get out to a game, I certainly invite everyone to join me on the broadcast at DaytonDragons.com. All righty. Thanks again, Tom. Thank you. All right. Many thanks to Bill Lack and especially to Tom Nichols, the voice of the Dragons, for that interview. Appreciate him taking some time out for us. And as always, thanks to Bill Lack. He's uh, just a, our interview guy here and does a fantastic job with those. Look forward to having Bill back on the podcast with me here possibly next week. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Come back again for us in a few days. We'll have yet another edition of Red Leg Nation Radio. Until then, you can listen to all our past podcasts at RN Radio. 
the RN Radio tab at RedLegNation.com. You could also subscribe via iTunes. Put it on your iPod, your MP3 player. Take it with you as you go. If you want to listen to me in the car, I can't imagine why you wouldn't. Uh, the dulcet tones of this big southern accent uh, as you're driving down the highway. Until next week, thanks again for joining us. So long. Mm-hmm.